invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're in the second half of that chapter. We're looking at, we looked at the wedding of Cana initially, and now we're looking at what is known as the cleansing of the temple, Jesus cleansing the temple. And we'll be looking at this in two parts. This morning we'll have part one where we will look at verse 1 through 17, and then next week, Lord willing, 18 to 22. I believe it deserves that kind of time and that kind of treatment if we're going to understand fully why the Lord would juxtapose these two particular events. They couldn't be more contrasting in terms of the power of Christ being on full display. It brackets his ministry. That is the joyous occasion of the miracle that took place at the wedding of Cana, this quiet little hamlet that's nestled in the hillside, a small town, joyous occasion. His mother's there. His disciples are there. Could be a family affair. Could be close friends. It was only some nine miles away from Nazareth. And we saw something amazing happen there. We saw Jesus have the servants fill six stone jars with water. The water for the purification is what those jars were meant for. And we see it miraculously. We don't know how. He doesn't say anything, nothing. He doesn't wave a wand. It becomes wine. And we understand through that occasion that what Christ brings us is joy. It's the gladness that's in the heart of the man or woman who understands who he is as Messiah. This is his, that was his first miracle. His first miracle after he began to accumulate followers with Andrew and John and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. They're there with him now at the wedding, watching these things take place as we looked at last week. So with your mind fixed on that, Jesus sort of reclining, if you will, watching everybody just shout with joy about how they saved the best wine for last and so on. And the significance that we talked about as we systematically looked at the significance of wine as it's talked about throughout Scripture, from that relaxed, joyous, serene occasion with friends and family. Spends a few days in Capernaum, and then we find this. Verse 13, chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The temple he found, in the temple rather, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out, all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Father, we thank you so much. It's a stunning contrast. In our scriptures, as you've... As you've appointed them to come down through the generations to us, has this coming from this wonderful wedding and the 
miracle committed there to something that is jarring. It's sobering. We need to understand not only what's happening here, but the significance of these things and how they would affect us as followers followers of yours today. So help us, Lord, to see what your word has to say in its fullness with regard to this event that you have put before us in the word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So it's an amazing contrast. And the cleansing of the temple is a powerful scene. But I want to set the stage for you. You already have some understanding, I'm sure, of why he's cleansing the temple, why that's important. But, but I think also what we need to do is we need to look at another text from the Old Testament so that we can see what happened, so that we can see what happens in the temple, so that we can see indeed what happens with all worship experiences, so that we might learn ourselves from it. You can either turn or listen as I read in Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to the Lord as he speaks through his prophet with regard to their forms of worship at that time, some 700 years before Christ. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of well-dressed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They don't go together. This is the point I'm picking up. Verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Uh, I don't know that Scripture has more powerful, remonstrating, rebuking words than when he's dealing with his own people and their forms of so-called worship. What they bring to the Lord what they're offering, their offerings to the Lord, is according to the law of Moses, of course, this is what we bring to you. In 1 Samuel, we see Samuel, of course, rebuking Saul. You're familiar with the scene, 1 Samuel 15. So already Samuel is, is putting him on the spot, so to speak, 
You, you failed to eliminate all of the Amalekites. He was supposed to kill not only all of the Amalekites, which include uh, small children, babies, the livestock, everything must be destroyed. And, of course, he didn't. There was sheep and oxen there. What is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears and all the rest of it? And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 21 where Saul is trying to cobble together some kind of an excuse. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. What what causes something like this? What causes somebody who is otherwise a fastidious worshiper who goes to the temple faithfully? Daily, week in, week out, they're there, they're sacrificing for their sins. What causes the Lord to reject such things? Let's suppose for a moment that there is a people of God and some folks are offering these sacrifices and there's another group of folks that are offering their sacrifices in the same way. They're not late to temple. They're there. They're offering their sacrifices. They're doing things according to the law of Moses and the Lord isolates some and says, I, I abhor, I despise your sacrifices. Well, I, I think clearly we could easily say that they have no heart for God. They didn't have a heart for God. They're submitting their sacrifices either through rote formality or through rank hypocrisy. Right? It's one or the other or both. They're presumptuous. They're self-righteous. They're self-willed. It's a Cain-like offering of sacrifice, which the Lord rejects. And we can see that. Instead of acceptable worship, their sacrifices have become detestable to God. That God has made very clear. And this isn't the only place, is it? All through the scriptures, even in the New Testament, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for their forms of worship, what's missing? What's wrong? Cain might ask the same question. What did I do wrong? You asked for a sacrifice, I brought it. I know who you are. Here it is. I brought it. Does it serve as an acceptable sacrifice, for instance, if it's submitted in a begrudging way? I'm waiting for somebody to answer that question. No, it does not. Why not? What's most important to God? The heart. There's no heart for God. There, there is the line of, of demarcation. That is what delineates acceptable sacrifice from unacceptable Isaiah 66 verse 3 says, He who slaughters, this is the type, this is what, this is how he views our sacrifices if our heart isn't really in it. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. 
He who sacrificed a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who, rep- he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. Do you know what that would have sounded like to a Jew? He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. And this is key. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. There's our answer. This is how I'm going to submit it. This is when I'm going to come. These are the sacrifices I'm willing to give and I will submit them no more. And where my heart is doesn't matter one way or another, whether I obey God, what does that have to do with it? That's legalistic sounding, isn't it? Jeremiah 6.20 What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. We'd best be asking ourselves, why not? Philip Ryken clarifies something from this particular verse. The people of Jerusalem were very religious. They were becoming sophisticated, fashionable, up-to-date, and contemporary in their worship. Glad this doesn't apply to us today. Their services were lavish and ornate. No expense was spared. They had imported exotic perfumes, frankincense from Saudi Arabia and calamus from India to spice up their worship. They were on an insatiable quest for the latest thing, but their hearts had wandered far from God, end quote. That's the point. What happens to a people over time who assemble to worship? What can happen to their heart? And, and, and further, and most importantly, I should say, how can we prevent that from happening? How do you keep this alive? How do you keep it real? How do you keep it legit? How do you keep it in a way that's pleasing to God? What are the things that are important to Him? Does He need anything we offer? I tire of your sacrifices. Quit bringing bulls and sheep in. It's wearying me. That's what Moses told us to do. And, and, and this, is, this is how we do church. Isn't it? Hmm. We won't get into any regulative principles or any such theological fine-tuning. We're looking at a passage. We're looking at the Christ. And I'm shocked. I'm shocked because I spent time digging into and seeing him there at the wedding at Cana. I saw him smiling, if you'll allow. I saw him interacting with those that he loved, looking forward to making their hearts glad in that joyous celebration of a man and a woman in holy matrimony. He was there, wasn't he? When God officiated the first wedding. There's so many things to reflect on from that wedding in Cana. And then this? What happened? What happened? 
Listen to Amos. Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an overflowing stream. You see, if I had your heart, you would be doing the things that I've called you to do. If you love me, you will. You'll do what I tell you to do. That's what it means to follow me. If you don't, you're not following me. I don't know who you're worshiping. Of course he does. Who you're worshiping. You can say it. Self. I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to mail this in. This is what I do week in and week out. This is how we do it. And then we go home, turn on the television, take a nap, or we go out and we have lunch. It's not going to cost me any more than that, is it? What did it cost him? Wait a minute. Yeah. So this is it. This is a note for you in your outline. Why is the Lord so vehemently opposed to the sacrifices of his people? In a word, disobedience, hypocrisy. A bunch of pasty-faced pretenders who are one way when it's time to be in the temple and quite another when they're living their lives. Away with that. At least... Live with the integrity of your heart and don't come into my solemn assembly. Don't bring your oxen and your sheep. Don't do it. There'll be more respect for you. They're pretenders. They're living life their way. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Passover, as you probably know, is celebrating the angel of death who had passed over the individual uh, houses of the Jews when they were captive in Egypt. They were to take a lamb and slaughter it and take its blood and paint the doorposts and the lintel over the doorpost so the angel would pass by. And there's a whole lot to that festival, which lasted a week in celebration. Later, uh, Mar or late March into April, I believe Nisan is that time frame is when they would celebrate. And every Jewish male who's 12 years old or older was expected to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And that's what he's doing here. He's being a dutiful child of God, only son of God and son of man, son of Mary. He's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So in John's Gospel, Jesus attends four Passovers in total, this one, another one in chapter 6, another one in chapter 11, and then the final one where he, in fact, himself becomes the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, who is sacrificed. 
There's another cleansing, of course, you may be aware of that takes place. This isn't the same one. There are two temple cleansings that bracket his ministry. Here, after the wedding at Cana, and also Matthew tells of one in Matthew 21. So we see him cleansing the temple again. This is just before he would serve as that final Passover lamb. This is his first Passover. He goes and he, to say he's indignant, I think is an understatement. And when he's ready to go to serve as the Passover lamb himself, he is quite indignant of what they've made of it, of what they've made of the Father's house. Verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Temple is Greek, heron, and it's speaking to that word, is speaking to uh, the whole uh, complex of buildings, including the entire courtyard area where all the money changers, where all the livestock was, and it makes sense that they would be buying, purchase, needing to purchase livestock because there's some one to two million people that are there for Passover each year. And they, do, they come from so far away, they don't necessarily have the means to bring, to bring their sacrificed animals along. So they would, in the past, take care of business outside the temple area. Somehow over time... They were able to start taking care of business, buying and selling the sacrificed animals in the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount. So this is different. Something's happened. And if you assume that perhaps high priest Annas or the rest, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, uh, have, their, have an opportunity to make some money here, you'd probably be on the right track. They knew that people would be coming without their, their animals to sacrifice. They knew they're being made available for sale. They have to accept which animals are acceptable for sacrifice and which don't. And when they come and they travel and they have to, and they bring, some of them bring their animals to be sacrificed, it's interesting. It just... A lot of them end up being disqualified. Got to buy another one. And the other thing is, you have to use the currency that they used in the day. Hence the money changers. And yes, of course, they charge a fee. So this is a mess. So Josephus says there's somewhere around 250,000 animals that are sacrificed for Passover. This is, imagine it. Imagine the sounds, the sights, the smells, all of it. And I want you to juxtapose that in your mind over against where we just came from at Cana. This couldn't be more contrasted. It couldn't be more different in terms of its outcome, in terms of the response from the Son of God himself. When you look at how he was in Cana and you look at him here, but now we can maybe understand. If you've got one to two million people, you've got two hundred fifty thousand animals that have to be slaughtered. You've got this making market, this crass consumerism, this crass marketing that's going on, this corruption that it unearths and exposes in his father's 
house. The Temple Mount became a place of crass consumerism and corruption. That's what he sees. All the noise, all the people, all of the animals, all of the corruption going on. So in pretty much every other scene that you find Jesus in in the Gospels, he's calm. He's compassionate. He does a lot of listening. Does more asking questions than he does making demands. He loves the people. He's healing people. He's feeding thousands of people and he's healing thousands of people. And he's the gentle servant. We're seeing a different Jesus here. I want to know why. Because this isn't a story left for some place in time 2,000 years ago. I think you and I know better than that. There's a reason that he's appointed that's to be a part of the full scriptures that we have. It's a living word and it speaks to us today. So what does he do? Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Made a whip of cords, that would be easy to do, given the fact that there were so many animals there, led by various ropes or twine or whatever. He doesn't intend intend to harm anyone. He doesn't even intend to harm the animals. He's making a point. This is more symbolic than it is him beating people, the money changers, or whipping the animals to get them out. He's fashioning this thing. What could be his point? What is the point of this story? If this is anything, it's a harbinger of coming judgment. This is grace. Isn't it? When you think of what he could do, what perhaps he ought to do, this is grace. I want you to think about this because the text says nothing about them resisting. The text says nothing about the high priest calling down the captain of the guard to bring in the 300 or 250 to 300 temple guards to deal with this this issue that's going on in the court of the Gentiles. The Romans, you remember when we were going through Acts and the big riot happened where they were trying to kill Paul, remember that? Who spotted this and went and did something about it? The Romans, remember? Why? Because they're up in the Antonia Fortress, which is the high place. When we were in uh, Israel, we stayed at the Gloria Hotel, which is by the Jaffa Gate, and you could look from the top of our hotel, you can see the what's left of the Antonia Fortress right there in the old city. So they had the high place, and they kept an eye on the... This was Pax Romana, right? This is what Rome insisted. This is what the Caesar insisted on, peace. And he accomplished it. It's pretty amazing, this Pax Romana. And we're going to keep it that way. Our people, I will put my, my tribunes in charge so that we keep the peace. That's the main thing. And if, so if it gets back to Rome that we failed at our job, we're in trouble. 
Where are they now? They were down there in a heartbeat when Paul was being beat up. They're trying to kill him. How did he get away with this? Where's the temple guard? Where's, where's the indignation? Where's the opposers? Where's a, those are, where, where are the big burly guys who could stand up and say, what do you, what, who do you think you are? This is their livelihood, isn't it? Don't you find that interesting? I do. It's not the point. The point is, this is Jesus. And he's saying this cleansing needs to happen. And it's going to happen now. But this is symbolic. When I come back again, it won't be some cheap-fashioned cord. It will be a drawn sword. This is grace. Clean it up now. You've been warned. That's what he's saying. Aren't you glad this was 2,000 years ago and has nothing to do with us? If that's lost on you, my friend, you might be lost. This strikes fear in my heart. Fear for me, fear for my church, fear for my fellow brothers that are pastors of churches. What are we doing? And if we don't get this cleansed now, with as dark as things are going, how can we stand when he comes? So the coming judgment, in its most immediate context, of course, refers to Titus Vespasian, who will come in 70 A.D., and literally destroy the place. There will not be one stone left unturned, according to Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It will all be torn down. That's the judgment that's coming, and there's another judgment coming, isn't there? So how? Nobody knew who Jesus was. How does one man run all of these animals and all of these businessmen and all of these money changers, there's got to be some untold hundreds of them, maybe thousands. If there's one to two million people that are there, if there are 250,000 animals being sacrificed, this place was packed. I have a, a theory. I, I think it's true. That is the greatest acts of courage come to those who are in the right. When you've been right, you've had a courage that you couldn't gin up yourself because it's, it's a rightness that doesn't come from you or I. It's a foreign righteousness. It comes from Jehovah to Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And when you stand in that righteousness, it makes you courageous. Look at the martyrs. And what, on the other hand, would make a man a coward when he knows what he's doing is wrong? Those who used to be outside the temple doing that kind of business, money changing, making profit out of sacrificing animals, and so on, they're in the temple now. They're in the Temple Mount area. I would suggest that a good number of them knew that they really don't belong there. They're glad to come in. 
Maybe Annas invited him. I don't know. The scripture doesn't say that, but he's surely profiting from this. The greatest acts of cowardice comes from those who know they're in the wrong. And that's when you and I have been our most cowardly. (laughs) Right? Are, Are you married? Let's not go there. Verse 16. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Realize what he's saying by saying, by referring to that as what? His father's house. What does that make him? Equal with God. We know that, don't we, from chapter 5 of John, verse 18. This is his, lays it out. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That'll get you killed. That's blasphemy in the worst order. Remember when he said, I and the father are what? This is my father's house. Be careful how you treat it. There's a reason that there was a component in the architecture of the medieval churches called the narthex. The narthex is that long chamber or that room that you come through when you come into the church because it's the place where you leave the worldly life we had during the week, all of the different things we have to be involved in, not worldly in a fleshly way, but things that we're engaged in are considered profane. Profane means pro means before, and fane was what the church was called, profane, before the fane. You're saying things that belong out there. You're thinking things that belong out there. You're thinking things. You're bringing your worship in here, and this has no business in the Father's house. Get the pigeons out of here. Remember Jesus' penetrating question? What was his question in chapter 1? When the, when the disciples, John the Baptist, and he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they went to follow him. What did he ask? Louder, please. One question. What are you seeking? Wow. What a penetrating question. Indeed. What actually am I seeking when I come into the Father's house? What am I seeking when I come into worship? Position, notoriety, money, whatever. So we check those things at the door. We get our heart right or our sacrifices rejected. Verse 17, his disciples remembered at that point that it's written, zeal for my father's, zeal for your house will consume me. And of course that's from... Psalm 69.9, zeal, zealos, in the Greek, means fervent of mind, indignation, 
jealousy. So you can see that as a, an alternative word sometimes, especially in the Old Testament. In Numbers, you can see, for instance, you can see that the, uh, the priests were, were, were jealous for God. It's the same idea. It's something worked up in a very powerful emotion on God's behalf. Surely. His disciples remembered this from King David. They're putting things together. They saw him commit the miracle. Right now they're following him. He said, what are you seeking? And they asked that. It seems like an inane question to me. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be irreverent. But where do you live? Okay. Come and see. C- come and see. And so from there they're following him, not necessarily as a born-again believer, but as a rabbi. You followed your rabbi. You lived with your rabbi. This is what mathetes means for the word for disciple. It's more than just I'm learning something from you. I'm actually imbibing your character. I'm taking on your worldview. I'm learning how to respond in the panoply of all my relationships the way you do. I'm finding my hope. I'm finding the truth. I'm finding what's false through you. Where do you live indeed? So they're following him. And then they wind up at Cana and they see the miracle that happens there. And they're like, and it says, do you remember the text? What does it say? I'm still in Isaiah. Do you remember when it said his his disciples believed him? No, it doesn't say that. Because they believed him before, they wouldn't be following him. You go from they believed him to they believe what? In him. Now they believe in him. So now what? Now what? This is David's son, and we understand from our prophetic, from our prophets, that he would come from the line of David. That's clear to every Jew. He's going to come from the line of David. Do you remember what David said? David said, For zeal for your house has consumed me. This is Psalm 69.9. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Except, see, the difference between King David and Jesus is Jesus has the capacity to do something about it. Do something about his zeal. And he does it. David was lamenting these things. They, they hate me without cause. And they end up being messianic in that sense. This, this psalm is quoted in a number of places in the New Testament. Psalm 119, 139 is similar. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. There's different places where you can see this zealousness that wells up in the man of God who, who has something that's that's engendering that powerful indignation. And it creates a zeal in him. Christians who zealously and unapologetically defend and proclaim God's word are considered crazy. 
I can tell you right now there's people in my family that if for whatever passing reason they were here, they'd be thinking right now, he's insane. And we see that, don't we, in Scripture? We see that when Paul was making his defense in Acts 26. We were there not too long ago, last year maybe, Acts 26, 24, when he's making his defense, he's, he's filled with zeal. You can imagine Paul. He's making this defense. He makes it three different times. He doesn't, it doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter to Paul that he gets another opportunity to make a defense? I get to share the gospel with two governors and with a king and with all of his entourage that's there. I'll do it again. Paul, Festus says with a loud voice, a loud voice. So that means he was pretty worked up. So Festus has to raise his voice and say, Paul, you are out of your mind. Don't be zealous for the Lord. See, the enemy wants you to tamp that down. How can you avoid zeal when you hold the truth of who God is and the truth of this gospel and the power inherent in that gospel? How can you contain yourself? Let them call you out of your mind. Paul said that in another place. Existemi, out of my mind. If I'm out of my mind, it's for what? For your sake. Listen. These things are important. They have to do not only with your life, but your eternal destiny. How do you keep that damp down? And according to what tradition must you be self-contained? He wasn't. He has Festus convinced he's nuts. How about Jesus? Remember what his family thought of him? In Mark 3, 20 to 21, you have, you have Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again. So he's got this mob. What a great opportunity, right? All he had to do was hand out some falafels to a few thousand people, healed some other ones, and they've got them all following him. Perfect captive audience for the gospel. So they're surrounding him. They're following him so that they could not even eat. They can't even get a meal in because of this crowd. And Jesus is out there stirring them up. This is his family. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. We got to stop this. He's... Well, let me, um, let me just read the scripture. For they were saying, he is what? Out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Yes, well then, if I'm out of my mind, it is for your sake. I have no other reason for being alive, for drawing breath than to tell you about the Christ who came into my darkness and breathed life into my nostrils. And all I care about is following him. It doesn't matter what other people think. Why should that matter? Well, if you're in for the wrong motives, like we talked about earlier, maybe. Can those motives creep in over time? They can. We just need to know that. They do creep in. I like what Thomas Brooks said, in the winter of affliction and persecution, in the winter of it, the worst of your affliction and persecution that you endure on his behalf, when the reproaches of him have fallen on you, 
in the winter of affliction and persecution, that divine fire, the zeal of a Christian, burns so much the hotter and flames forth so much the more vehemently and strongly, end quote. We got to be careful not to mischaracterize the Puritans, don't we? As bookish, overly scholastic. These folks were on fire. Filled with a holy zeal for one. And it didn't matter what happened to them. You know you've grown to maturity in your love for God when his reproach has become yours. Bring it. Bring it. Have you suffered the loss of friends? Have you suffered the loss of family members because of who you are in Christ? Simply because of that, you won't live the way they want you to live. They, you, they have you in a certain box, a certain category. They've painted and profiled in a certain way. And, and, you, and, and you're like, that person's dead. And he needs to stay dead because he's now been made alive. Alive in Christ. And in him we live and move and have our being. Praise God. Psalm 69, 7 and 8, before the one that's cited here that the disciples recognized, 7 and 8, just before verse 9, for it is for your sake that I have become reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. This is David. I have become a stranger to my brothers. Been there? It doesn't feel good. An alien to my own mother's sons. I want to draw your attention to one other thing. This if you caught it, you caught a very important nuance, I believe. Psalm 69, 9, that came to their minds. For zeal for your house has consumed me, it says. Is that what it says in our text in verse 17? Zeal for your house will consume me. It's future tense there. It's going to take his life. F.F. Bruce said, the zeal for the house of God which Jesus manifested on that occasion would yet be the death of him, end quote. So as we're bringing this in for a landing Let's talk about this, shall we? I mean, should not a body of Christ talk about this? Let's talk about reformation. Let's talk about what that looks like. Let's talk about the importance of it. What is this going to take? The fact that we have two different temple cleansings in the four Gospels, one at the beginning and one at the end of Jesus' ministry, what does that tell us? This is a three-year ministry. He's cleansing it now at the very beginning, and just before he gives up his life at the end, at that Passover, he has to cleanse it again. What does that tell you? One very important lesson. That an external cleansing doesn't get it. 
oh, we could fashion a whip, so to speak, and drive out everything external, couldn't we? But what's the problem with that? What is it that God wants? The heart. Church, of course, has replaced the temple to be God's dwelling place. We are not only that, but the individual Christian now, we learn from Scripture, has replaced the temple. We've become the temple of God, as you know. So God's dwelling place, his habitation is not in some localized geographical area in some structure made out of wood and stone. Read Stephen's sermon before they stoned him to death. See, there's someone who was zealous for the Lord, right? We saw the outcome there. He rebuked them on the spot for what they made of this temple. For what you made of wood and stone. You've missed it. He's indignant. He's rebuking all of them that are there, including the man who was holding the coats. What was his name? Saul, who became Paul. Now we're the temple. So where do you reckon the work work has to happen? Here. Right here in, in our hearts. Reforming the church begins in the hearts of its members. This is where we have to start. This is what we work on. Week in and week out, day in and day out. Is my heart right? Remember these that question. What are you what? Seeking. Because that can change, can it? By stealth, it changes. It's a subtle change. When, when have you caught yourself saying, when did this happen? When did this happen? I remember the day. I remember the day 30, 33 years ago, this month, driving from New York City to Los Angeles. I remember coming to know him. I remember my eyes being opened up. I was on fire. What happened? What happens to us? What happened to that day for you? Hopefully nothing. Hopefully you've got enough kindled there to allow it to burst forth in holy zeal on behalf of Christ. They need to see a flame. They're blind. It needs to burn away the cataracts of their fallenness, of their rebellion against God. And we should come in with some kind of ho-hum attitude because there's some kind of a tradition where you'd better speak a certain way, stand a certain way, there's a certain... And by the way, it's getting pretty close to 12. And wow! So corruption festers in the heart of man. This is what happens. This is what we want to watch for. Corruption festers in the heart of man. In other words, it's infectious. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't stay static. It begins in the flesh. It begins with, it begins with, with rote repetition, rope for formality, which then grows into a rank hypocrisy, as I mentioned earlier. When did that rank hypocrisy happen? So this conviction has to happen. This conviction in the individual Christian, that's where reformation starts in the internal part, in the, in, in the, in the word, through the word of God, brings conviction into the heart of man. So conviction has to happen. We have to be convicted here today. 
and only today are we fixed then you're like i hope so because i don't want to go through this again neither do i so we help each other stay malleable in the heart keep it a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone don't let it turn into clay that's hardened this is the beginning Reformation always will come through a robust ministry of God's Word, right? Ian Murray, a number of notable luminaries, have written a lot about that. Legit revival comes when the Word of God has its place of primacy in its full-orbed intention. The public ministry of the word and the private ministry of the word. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, all of it. So it's not fake. So we don't become bookish. So we never settle down. We're never satisfied. We go to the word every day to keep our hearts soft and receptive of his word. It begins with us. 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. It begins, he says, with us. That's what we say today. Ephesians 2.19, you are the members of God's household. 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is the what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. Tag, we're it. This falls on us. This message falls squarely on each and every one of us. Jeremiah had preached what was essentially a temple sermon in chapter 7 of his prophecy. He was told to preach it in the temple. So it becomes important. The, there was a time of national crisis and they lost all hope in the political the politicians let's not go there if your confidence still might be that God would just allow somebody to win a certain election or some group of somebody's you're not getting this you're not getting the gracious way in which God is preparing us for something. And if you have no indication what that be, I, I wonder if we're paying attention to what's going on, the darkness that is settling in. So he's preaching this in the temple. He's told to go to the temple, and he's told to preach this. Chapter 7, we'll just read 9 to 11. It says this. Will you steal? In the temple, I want you to say this. God says... Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? Don't do it only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, 
He says it again. Become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, here it is. Brace yourself. I myself have seen it. Who is it that's here today? Who is it that is El Roi, the God of seeing? That's what Hagar realized. You're El Roi. You're a God who sees. Yes. He not only sees what goes on, he sees why. Because he's looking at your heart. What are you seeking? What are you seeking indeed? Calvin said, Sacrifices are of no importance or value before God unless those who offer them wholly devote themselves to God with a sincere heart. If you fancy yourself as a Reformed believer, there you have it. It's not about how much, how well you can argue certain theological fine points. It's not the best theological memes you can put up on Facebook. Is how is it with your heart? Do you love him? Do you know him? Do you follow him? That's what I want to ask myself every single day. Riken has a couple more important things to say, and we're done. I just, I want you to hear this. Long before Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther or John Calvin, there was a reformer named Jeremiah. If that great prophet were alive in these post-Christian times, he would do what the Protestant reformers did. He would preach God's word. He would tell the evangelical church to mend its ways. He would teach that religious observance without moral obedience cannot save. You can't dial in your Christianity. You can't dial in your, your, your justification to your specifications. It doesn't work that way. He would say that what the church needs now is reformation, end quote, and I would agree. But here's a warning I want as we finish. I want to give you a, a caution, a heads up uh, of the danger of self-cleansing. This is Jesus cleansing his house. Jesus is the one who cleansed his house. Where is his house now again? You who are believers in this place. Beware of this self-cleansing in an unoccupied heart. In other words, don't go from this place. I've got to clean all this up. That was really convicting. I'm going to clean all this up. I'll be good to go. I'm ready for that reformation of the church. I know what I need to get rid of in my life. I know what I need to focus on in my life. I'll get this cleaned up. Why do you think he had to do it again? I asked you the question again. Why, did it why would it have to happen again? Because it was all external. This kind of self-cleansing will become cyclical for you. You're, you're circling the drain because you missed something important, if that's you. And I think the point is well made in Matthew 12. 
In the NAS, it says this, verse 43, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it what? Unoccupied. I prefer NAS because it uses that word, which I think is the perfect rendering. It was meant to be occupied. By whom? It's swept clean. He's come back. So did Jesus have to come back and sweep the place clean again? It's unoccupied. He finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes out and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes what? Worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. Clean it out, but let him do it. Hand him the broom. What's that symbolic of? That's saying, that's saying, Lord, I don't have the power to do this. I've proven that the first 33 years of my life. It just made things worse. You need to do it. Besides, you need to live here. This The only way to keep the world out of my heart is to keep it filled with Christ. And do you remember the water jars? Did it, did it take the time to say how full it, they filled them? What does it say? To the brim. Then nothing else can come in. I can't be possessed by demons. I can't... I can't be enticed by things, by sins. I've, I've, I've made no provision for the flesh. I put on the Lord Jesus Christ and made no provision for the flesh. I walk by the Spirit that I will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. It's filled with Him. Every day, I don't seek a moral cleansing. Every day, I seek my Christ, the one that I love, the one that came and saved my life. He needs to be there. I don't want anything else. He promised, by the way, the work that I've begun, what? I will finish. Philippians 1, verse 6. It is Him that is in you, both to work and to will according to His good pleasure. Therefore, work out your salvation in fear and cleansing. Let Him cleanse you. You know what needs to change because he convicts you by his spirit. Let him do it. Yield to the spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. Yield to him. One more from Reagan and I'm going to pray. Reformation always begins with the people of God. Reformation is something that starts in the church. It begins when God's own people are convicted of their sins and turn to God with new repentance, trust in God with new faith, and walk with God in new obedience. 
That kind of spiritual reformation always has an influence on the city, the society, or the civilization. But it always starts in the hearts of God's people. End quote. End sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your patience, how you endure with us. I pray, Lord, that as, as you've established convictions in our hearts for various things according to the person that you love and that you're at work in, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would keep us from allowing our pride to prevent you from doing a necessary work. It's a humbling work indeed, but do it, O oh Lord. Crush our pride. Show us what needs to change, what needs to be addressed. And if anyone up to this point has not known you, I pray now, O Lord, they see you. They see you as you are, the Son of God, the Christ. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that you go with us now. Having done that incremental work of sanctification that you promise you will complete. In Jesus' name we pray.